This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... This morning, chaos unfolding across Sudan as fighting enters its third day. Uh, no one expected, perhaps, uh, that this would unfold so quickly and so violently, uh, with huge consequences for the population. Sudanese are fleeing what they describe as a living nightmare. This is not right. The first responsibility that we have as nations is to stop violence and stop suffering and stop targeting civil populations. In Sudan, airstrikes rocked the capital Khartoum today as another truce between the country's warring generals appeared to collapse. Both sides of the fighting really have no regard to the lives and safety of civilians. It's the poor, it's the innocent, it's the medical people who will suffer from this. Yes, I'm, I'm very angry and I'm helpless, you know, what to do. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, and as I'm sure you've already guessed, today we're going to take a long, hard look at the conflict in Sudan and what the United Nations and humanitarian agencies here in Geneva, the ones whose very purpose, let's be honest, is to either prevent such conflicts happening or at the very least to help ease the suffering can actually do in this situation. Anger on the streets of Khartoum today. Protesters blocking off neighbourhoods, taking big risks to show their contempt for Sudan's military coup. In Sudan's streets, hundreds of thousands march to try and reclaim their country from a coup. A little reminder first what this is all about. Sudan was supposed to be transitioning to democracy. Remember those popular protests against the military leaders? Well, and the cynic in me says, surprise, surprise, Sudan's military leaders decided they didn't want to give up power after all. And now they're fighting each other to hang on to it. The losers, as ever, are civilians. Our first guest on Inside Geneva today is Vittorio Opizzi, Project Coordinator for Sudan with Doctors Without Borders, that's Médecins Sans Frontières, Switzerland. Now, MSF has been present in Sudan for decades, and Vittorio told me this latest conflict can only make a challenging humanitarian situation worse. One of the things that uh, first came to mind when the crisis happened is indeed that this adds on a situation that was already critical. Doctors Without Borders had a huge number of projects in several parts of the countries. Some are more prone to conflict. We've also seen several epidemics that we responded to it and the nutrition situation as well. That's both for the population of Sudan, but also Sudan is hosting, has been hosting, especially in the East, refugees from the conflict in northern Ethiopia. And we're responding to that as well. So the thing that struck me was the complexity of the humanitarian situation before and so thinking that this adds on an already very critical situation. You were there just before this conflict broke out. Did you sense it? So, I mean, as usual, and, uh, you know, and Medicines uh, and work in this type of context, so uh, we always work in analyzing the risk and look at scenarios. So, indeed, the situation was one where this was a scenario. Um, however, uh, no one expected, perhaps, uh, that this would unfold so quickly and so violently. So indeed, yes, it was a scenario and we were prepared for it in part. Um, however, indeed, its nature has been very, very violent uh, with huge consequences for the population. No matter what we can do ourselves to prepare, 
as we saw since day one, the violence of this conflict imposed a number of limitations for our response, and, and that was very critical and hard to see. So obviously, we go through all sorts of emotions, unable to help, but willing to. And of course, first and foremost, concerns for those patients that they would have seen that day, uh, the nurses, the doctors that are in the hospital, and that's very scary, not being able to be in touch with them, knowing that uh, there's things we can do to help and not, and, and to manage that day after day after day, that's very hard. On top of this, let's not forget, the conflict was very, very violent. Huh? So we're talking of a street-to-street fighting, airstrike. So on a personal level, they feel the impact of it every hour, every day. I mean, obviously, it's for your staff there, it's it's a big personal risk. But it also must be, if, with the, the type of job you do, it must be incredibly frustrating to see that basic, like, health, access to health, hospitals, is just completely stopped, blocked even. That's a, a choice that none of us could could really imagine. Let's assume the, the population was in need of even just their basic healthcare, or even worse, those that got wounded, they had to make the impossible choice to take a risk and try and reach a health facility under heavy fighting, and then perhaps find out that that health facility has been attacked or that the staff is not there, or stay put at home. And that's, and that's incredible. That's what we've seen also in terms of fleeing the most violent area, Again, another impossible choice for the population, first of all. Um, what do they do? They stay put, knowing that they may come under attack, their house can be taken over by one of the warring parties, or taking their chances and exposing themselves to huge dangers, but trying to leave the city, for instance, for the capital, and look for safety. That's, that's very, very hard. What would you like to see now for Sudan? Well, you know, uh, the situation without... An ongoing conflict was already very hard. We were forced to prioritize and making choices because addressing all the needs, yeah, that's clearly behind our capacity. What we want now, we want this conflict to stop and population to be respected. We want healthcare facility to be allowed to function and health personnel to be protected because that's the only way we can do our job and that's the only way the population can regain the level of access to healthcare that they need. Residents of Khartoum woke up this morning to a declared ceasefire for Eid, which sounded like this. Sudan, where yet another ceasefire between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces has been repeatedly violated. Unfortunately, those doing the fighting don't seem to be listening. Tentative ceasefires grudgingly agreed have not been honoured. In Khartoum, bombs and artillery are raining down on civilian areas. Calls from the UN for humanitarian access are being ignored. Aid supplies looted. Hundreds of thousands of people have fled their homes in terror. Everything points to serious violations of human rights and of international law. So this is a job for UN human rights, right? Last week, the UN Human Rights Council did meet in emergency session, and we'll have more of that later. And 48 UN special experts, from the expert on the right to food, to the expert on the sexual abuse of children, to the expert on summary execution, wrote an open letter warning of the terrible cost of the fighting on civilians. Our next guest on Inside Geneva is one of those experts. So um, I'm Paula Gaviria. I'm the um, Special Rapporteur for the Human Rights of the Internal Displaced Persons uh, 
I started my my job uh, past November. Sudanese are fleeing what they describe as a living nightmare. Many are waiting at the border to cross into Egypt. Buses and trucks arrive at the Egyptian-Sudanese border, full of people fleeing the violence in Sudan. There was a um, internally displaced crisis in Sudan already, with the 3.7 million. In only the sub-Saharan region, we have 31.7 million IDPs, only in five countries, with Somalia and the Democratic Republic of Congo and Nigeria and Ethiopia having figures. I mean, Congo has 5.6 million internally displaced persons, Ethiopia 3.8, Nigeria 3.6 million, and Sudan 3.5 in 2022, plus the 700 something now. So these are protracted crises. These are situations where people have not their basic human rights where they don't have safety, where they don't have, yeah, the basic needs that they need to have, their livelihoods. You've been in the job since November, less than a year. Many, many problems, war in Ukraine, Syria still, Afghanistan, Yemen, now another conflict in Sudan. Now, you're the special rapporteur for the internally displaced You joined a statement made by special rapporteurs to the Human Rights Council. What are your chief concerns when it comes to Sudan? Why are we putting in the center the civilian population? Why do they have to suffer the most? We we don't learn from our own mistakes and from history. And this this people from Sudan have suffered way too much. It's it's one of the countries, one of the ten countries in the world that has the most internally displaced persons, more than 3,700,000 people. And now we have new displaced persons, more than 700,000 until yesterday. So this is really a crisis, a humanitarian crisis. I'm worried about their vulnerabilities. I'm worried about, obviously, their humanitarian needs, but also the um, attacks that the different infrastructure, the health, the hospitals have, have received. There's no, in this type of crisis, there's no respect for the basic institutions and the basic needs of, of the people. We've seen UN warehouses looted, some aid workers killed, the aid agencies who stayed really not able to move around. Do you think the United Nations is is helpless in this situation? I mean, theoretically, it's there to promote human rights. It's there to prevent conflict or at least try to find peace. But this looks very challenging. It is challenging. And it's the moment to to work together better. The whole society and the, the UN system being fit for purpose. This is where we are at stake. So um, I think there is... There are things to do. There are things that have been done. I think that the um, resolution for the Human uh, Rights Council yesterday was an important step. I think the existence of the designated expert on Sudan is important, an important mandate, an important message. Obviously not enough. But I also think that the humanitarians have, the whole humanitarian system has, is working together. And I think that's an important message. So um, 
I, I, I really, I, I really wish to highlight that the, the humanitarian actors are now creatively devising strategies to meet the needs. New displacement over protracted displacement where people have been vulnerable for, for many years. So what are the answers after the, the political solution comes up? We need to think fast because then we're going to have more than 4 million people after this crisis that are going to be protracted in their displacement added to the refugees because Sudan is also a country that receives refugees. I think that's really interesting. You said the, the humanitarians were very united working together, trying to find out what they could do, even if it's not maybe the usual ways of, of delivering aid. You said now is the time to for us, the UN, to work together, to show we're together. And yet, at the Human Rights Council, this was an incredibly narrow vote. No African countries voted for the resolution on Sudan. Does that concern you? I'm new at this. I just started, but obviously it's 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 surprising to see that uh, that many maybe politics get in the way. I think that um, that the message, only the message of having a special session on Sudan, only few weeks after the crisis uh, began, it's a very important political message, and it's an important message that countries have to send to Sudan and to the neighboring countries in order to say, this is not right. This is not right. The first responsibility that we have as nations is to stop violence and stop suffering and stop targeting civil populations. So this should be a worldwide commitment. Paula says our first responsibility as nations is to stop violence. Now, who would disagree with that? No one, probably, or at least not out loud. But as last week's Human Rights Council session showed us, we do disagree about how to stop violence. The call to hold the session came from the US, the UK, Germany and Norway. And this is why, said the UK's ambassador, Simon Manley. The scale of the suffering has been extraordinary. Hundreds killed, thousands wounded, hundreds of thousands displaced, millions now at risk. This is a humanitarian and human rights crisis that we are seeing unfold on our TV screens. And it is absolutely the right and the responsibility of the Human Rights Council to react. Uh, And in particular, because of the scale of the human rights violations and abuses we've seen, and also, of course, the violations of international humanitarian law is, you know, jets attacking civilian areas and the rest. Uh, It's just been appalling and it's tragic because... The Human Rights Council has played such a role over the years in supporting the process of democratic civilian transition in Sudan. And now we're seeing these awful scenes of violence. European countries and the US united around that message. And when he opened the session, the UN Human Rights Commissioner, Volker Turk, denounced what he called wanton violence. Both sides have trampled international humanitarian law, notably the principles of distinction proportionality and precaution. Sudan's crisis does look like precisely the sort of situation the UN's top human rights body should investigate. But African states, including Sudan itself, didn't even want the meeting. Some viewed it as unconstructive finger-pointing. Others claimed it might jeopardise fragile ceasefire talks. The Sudanese ambassador told the council his country's problems were an internal affair. 
The result of the recorded votes are as follows. 18 in favor, 15 against, and 14 abstentions. And so when it came to a vote on a pretty minor proposal actually to beef up the UN's human rights monitoring in Sudan, it was very, very close. Not a single African country voted in favour. So where does that leave the UN's human rights work? Rights groups are worried, says Mohammed Osman, who is Sudan specialist with Human Rights Watch. I think from day one it was very evident and still that both sides of the fighting um, really have no regard to the lives and safety of civilians. I mean, the explosive weapons that have been used, whether tank shells or airdrop bombs, they are indiscriminate in its impact. You and other human rights groups, you were part of this joint letter calling for UN human rights to get involved. What did you hope for there? I mean, we hope the international community, I mean, notably the Human Rights Council or whether the UN Security Council, to really start caring about Sudan. I mean, there has been years of neglect, you know, the focus has been much on the facilitation of the political talks with the elites, political elites and the military leaders. So the expectations from the council in particular to start sending the right message to the Sudanese people that their suffering matter and they will respond to the magnitude and the scale of the fighting that we have been seeing in the last more than two weeks. We had the session. We've got stepped up monitoring not a full-blown commission of inquiry. It was clear, I was talking to to what we call Western diplomats before that, that they felt this would never get through. When the vote came for quite a minor intervention, stepped up monitoring, no African states voted in favour. That must concern you. I mean, it is very concerning. I mean, by different actors, I mean, the push itself for a special investigation. I mean, one, it would correspond to the magnitude of the violence, but it's also really, again, sending the message that, you know, we care, you know, we are going to respond with an effective mechanism as we saw in other contexts. So the at the same time, when, when African countries talk about African solution for African problems, you know, the prioritization of the AU and the EGAD, they, that they want to engage with situation in Sudan, at the same time, voting in that way, resulting in, let's say, a disappointing outcome, it does affect you know, the hopes of Sudanese and the way they perceive regional institutions. It was argued that the, the Human Rights Council getting involved at this point might jeopardise talks on a ceasefire. I mean, that's usually the talking point, right? Like in terms of the peace-justice paradox, we saw that in the negotiations before the coup when protesters you know, risking their lives saying we can't coexist democratic transition cannot coexist with abusive leaders, diplomats and facilitators who are like, well, you know, we can't really push them further because we are worried about them fighting. Now this has happened. This is why people for almost two years saying it's going to happen if you continue to embolden them. Using humanitarian access as a negotiating card, denying it, it's in itself an abuse. Countries should be calling them out not to accept that reality. Well, what do you think Sudan's neighbours, I mean, including South Africa, who abstained, what are they doing at the Human Rights Council? Because there are all sorts of strange permutations of the vote at the Human Rights Council. We have the developed white, rich countries ordering an investigation into an African nation, and the African nations 
voted against that. It's it's actually not a very good look for the UN, is it? Of course. I mean, it does speak volume, as I said. I mean, even before the fighting started, you know, for years we've been asking the UN to step up their own investigations, you know, on the ground. That call was never responded to because the prioritization, even by the UN itself, was to focus on the dynamics in Khartoum. So, you know, having that vote, I mean, even having that disappointing vote from the African group or even from the OIC countries, it feeds into that. I mean, even some of the Western diplomats were much more concerned by jeopardizing, you know, and the complementarity of other initiatives more than actually pushing much harder and using much more leverage over these countries to pursue them to vote into the right direction. Do you have any sympathy for some countries, not just in Africa, they're also in Asia, some also in Latin America, who say they don't like the Human Rights Council's tactic of of naming and shaming. They don't like these country-specific resolutions. For me, it's it's very difficult to tell exactly why they voted this way. Um, You know, people have some issues with the country-specific mandates, naming and shaming, But the reality in Sudan is really different from that. I mean, this is what the people wanted. It's not like it's a Western-imposed imagination. This is what the demands of the people in Sudan. I mean, I have to say most of the Sudanese I talked to, they had very little hope from the international and the regional community. They have been experiencing that neglect for years. However, you know, we remained hopeful. You know, it's not even telling them we told you so, but we did raised, you know, the alarm bells really early since the coup, even during the transition itself since 2019, that things are not going okay. If you continue to putting justice on the backseat, that would backfire. So the hope was at least the Human Rights Council, being the body mandated for human rights, would respond to that reality much, much better than other organizations and groups. But it didn't happen. The UN's aid chief is calling on Sudan's warring factions to guarantee the safe passage of humanitarian supplies. But on the ground, fighting continues across the country, including in Khartoum and its twin city, Omdurman. It's not the first time, of course, that the UN Human Rights Council has been divided over what looks like a clear-cut case. But this Sudan example is, for me at least, quite telling. The resolution was passed, yes, but narrowly, and it only called for a couple of extra monitors. Meanwhile, the fighting goes on, and the humanitarian organisations struggle, not just to deliver support now, but with the knowledge that years of work they have already done in Sudan is being destroyed. We'll leave you with some more observations from Doctors Without Borders. Melat Haile is MSF Switzerland's medical regional manager. This is on top of the big challenge that people have to get basic needs, food, basic health care, and access for uh, women health care. We know that there are a lot of maternal mortality. We know there is a big uh, neonatal mortality. Uh, we know that there is an increasing food insecurity and malnutrition in the country since past few years. And this is why also we have a program in Sudan. MSF has been in Sudan since Darfur conflict. Last year alone, in 2022, we have conducted more than half a million consultation, medical consultation, 21,000 uh, inpatient care for Various reasons, malnutrition, respiratory tract infection, but also provide care for delivery and pre-delivery care. And now the need is going to be 
much more. Uh, adding the conflict into that, it doesn't help, and it put the fragile health already in a in a very bad condition. So, what are your teams in in Sudan doing now? Your medical teams. Since the conflict started, we have been able to do donation of medical supply and we have been helping our staff who are also stuck at home by calling and reassuring them, uh, but also trying to, to, to gain access to, you know, to, to health facilities to be able to, to, to support. We have surgical staff and medical staff who are prepared and who are waiting to help. But today, the big issue is how do we access in the middle of the conflict? You can't even go out in the street in Khartoum at the moment. Is that right? No, that's, you know, that's, that's impossible. Let alone for, you know, foreigners, but even for the people uh, for ordinary people to get their daily basic needs to get the food it's 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 dangerous i would say so to make you angry these two sides these two armed groups fighting for power and, and ordinary people get caught up I am. I am in a way. And I know also it's the poor, it's the innocent, it's the medical people, it's the, the innocent population who will suffer from this. Yes, I'm, I'm very angry and I'm, hope, I'm helpless, you know, what to do and how to do. We have medical supply and we used to have team in the ground, but today we don't have access. So it is very difficult and I'm, I'm angry that we cannot help anymore. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to all our guests and to you for listening. I'm Imogen Folks. Don't forget to review us if you liked or even didn't like the programme. And join us next time when we'll be taking a long, hard look at what we've learned or not learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our previous episodes, how the International Red Cross unites prisoners of war with their families, or why survivors of human rights violations turn to the UN in Geneva for justice. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. <laughs>